This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 172. Hey there, everyone. Merry Christmas. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fresh new fiction and share all the latest on my journey as a writing professional. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 30 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has found her first suspect in the string of murder kidnappings that is plaguing the city. Kate and her new partner, Elizabeth Moore, examined the body of a Kumari refugee, who had died recently enough that Kate was able to perform an augury on the body. In Kate's vision, they saw the woman's captor, and Lizzie identified the man as a former classmate of hers, Nevin Ardlido. Lizzie and Nevin shared a common room at Chisholm University, the elite school for the Empire's ruling class. Lizzie had often thought there was something unpleasant about Nevin, but she never imagined he could be a murderer. Kate and Lizzie obtained some DNA samples from the outside of Nevin's house, then took them to the crime labs at Justice Tower and applied for a search warrant. Their hope is that if Nevin's DNA matches any of the DNA left on the body, then they can tie Nevin to the murder, and hopefully get more information on who else is behind the attacks. In Kate's vision, Nevin told his victim that he was targeting the vampire prince, Malcomard Valos. This would suggest that Nevin was working with the White Widow's insurgency against the syndicate. But new evidence has contradicted this narrative. One of Morgan's forensic examiners, an esper named Pamela Nightshade, performed a psychic reading on the body. Pamela's vision showed her the moment when the victim was the most afraid, and it didn't look anything like what Kate had seen. Six robed and hooded figures surrounded the woman, performing some sort of black magic ritual. And there was a strange religious symbol as well, a skull and an old-fashioned key, surrounded by an arch, and closed with a chain. The cultists made sure the Kumari woman knew that she was going to die forgotten, alone, with no one to perform the funeral rites that were so essential to her religion. With no markers to guide her way to the afterlife, she would be condemned to wander forever in the forest of the lost. Kate and Lizzie puzzled over why the two visions would be so different. Lots of things could interfere with an augury, but this wasn't a simple matter of interference. Both visions were detailed, and the details didn't match. Before they could spend much time thinking about it, though, Lizzie received a message from the district attorney. The warrant has been approved. It's time to move against Nevin. The two detectives hurried to the roof of Justice Tower, where an assault shuttle was prepped with the SID SWAT team on board. They met the team's leader, Lieutenant Jaguer, who asked Kate whether she wanted snipers in place around Nevin's house. The thought of this gave Kate another flashback, 
forcing her to remember again the thrall she killed in the line of duty. Kate told Jaguar to move the shooters into place, but they want Nevin alive if it's at all possible. The team boarded the shuttle and headed off into the brooding gray sky. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamorph City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 30 The shuttle had been circling Nevin Artlito's neighborhood for almost two hours when the radio crackled in Kate's headset. SID 38, Solshore 109. Eyes on target. Moving westerly on Vista Boulevard. ETA 5 minutes. Lieutenant Jaguer responded. Acknowledged, Solshore 109. Maintain position. SID 13, eyes on Vista Boulevard. Copy 38. Officer SID 13, one of the rooftop snipers watching Nevin's house, adjusted his position. On the assault shuttle's main communications screen, Kate watched the uplink from his scope-mounted camera as he turned his gaze toward Vista. Soon, the suspect's skimmer appeared, an unremarkable brown sedan, fifteen or twenty years old, with a long crack in the windshield. For someone who had attended a university as prestigious as Chisholm, Nevin seemed to have fallen on hard times. Kate wondered if the syndicate had had something to do with that. Was this all about revenge? It doesn't matter, she told herself. Malcolm's hurt a lot of people. He hurt Morgan more than I can really understand, and you don't see her going out and murdering people. SID 21, Jaguar said, as she watched the suspect approach in the vid feed. Come down the block to Vista and Hillard and hold there. Copy, Lieutenant. The unmarked SID cruiser slid quietly into position, ready to close off the suspect's escape route if he doubled back. Jaguar made several more small adjustments over the next few minutes, tightening the net around their quarry. Nevinard Lido's skimmer never changed its path, apparently oblivious to the police presence all around him. He turned onto his home street, opened his garage door remotely from the end of the block, turned into the driveway and slipped inside in one smooth motion. The garage door began to close. All units stand by, Jaguar ordered. Kate pulled out her sidearm, checked the magazine in the chamber, and waited. Her muscles were as taut as a racehorse in the starting gate. Beside her, Lizzie's tail twitched in anticipation. As soon as the garage door had shut completely, Jaguar barked into the calm. Go, go, go! The shuttle dropped through the clouds like a stone. If Kate hadn't been wearing her seat restraints, it would have thrown her against the ceiling. The pilot steered them on a parabolic course that ended a few seconds later with a hard kick from the repulsor engines, rocking her forward against her restraints even as it tried to shove her under the seat in front of her. The craft landed hard on its landing skids directly in front of Nevin's garage which conveniently blocked his skimmer inside, behind four tons of armored aircraft. The gullwing doors popped up along the sides of the shuttle. Kate hit the big red release button in the center of her harness, then bolted from the vehicle along with Lizzie and the SWAT team. 
More SID officers exited their cruisers and closed in on the house, forming a perimeter in case the suspect made a run for it. Jaguerre and one of her male officers went up to the front door first. The man pounded on it with the butt of his rifle. Police! he shouted, so loudly that Kate suspected it was magically amplified. We have a warrant! Open up! They waited, but there was no response. All around the house, Jaguerre's men and women moved into position, pointing their rifles at every door and window. The curtains were all drawn, though, and Kate could see no hint of what was happening inside. After the legally mandated thirty-second wait, the officer pounded on the door again. This is the police! We have a warrant to search these premises! If you do not open the door in one minute, we will force entry and come in after you! Silence. Lizzie's tail thrashed in agitation. Come on, Nevin, she whispered. It's over. Just give up. The seconds crawled by. Laser sighting dots from the snipers appeared on the front door, then vanished. Kate frowned, uneasy. What's he doing in there? Jaguerre glanced aside at Lizzie. Hey, Moore, you smell anything on the other side of this door? Explosives, maybe? That was an ugly thought. Would a man who wanted to destroy the syndicate really be willing to blow up his house, and himself, to kill a dozen or so cops? Lizzie swallowed visibly, then crept up to the front door. She sniffed all around the edges, on the door handle, on the mat in front of the door that read, Welcome Friends. No explosives, she said. Kate had been examining the door with her aura sight at the same time. No wards either, she said. Jaguerre nodded her thanks, then turned to two of her SWAT officers. Get the ram up here. The breaching ram was the most mundane of mundane technology, a long, heavy piece of metal with a couple of handles on each side. But when it came to opening doors, there wasn't a wizard on earth who could do it faster. One good swing from a pair of strong police officers, and the ram smashed through the locks and sent the steel security door swinging open. Jaguerre and her people swiftly and carefully moved inside, their gun-mounted flashlights sweeping the darkened interior. Lizzie and Kate followed cautiously in their wake, crouching low and pointing their sidearms at the floor. Kate's heart began to pound with excitement but she stepped back from her emotions and gave the reins to her hunter vision, the cool, rational, threat assessment mode that had been drilled into her by years of training. There was nothing extraordinary about the house on the ground level. Kate quickly took in a living room, dining room, and kitchen connected in an open floor plan. She saw books, vid discs, a few knick-knacks on shelves, and a moderate amount of dust and clutter. Nothing triggered her as a threat. To the left, beyond the living room, lay a narrow hallway, probably leading to the bedroom and bath. To the right, in the kitchen, a door to the garage stood open, as did a second door with stairs leading down. Jaguerre and her team swept the upper level in less than a minute, calling out each time one of the rooms came up clear. The basement was the last area to be checked, and the SWAT lieutenant took the lead her rifle at the ready. A moment later, her shout drifted up from below. Freeze! Police! 
There followed a long moment of brittle silence. When Jaguar spoke again, Kate could only hear her over the comms. Oh, Eli. Then, a second later, Katane, more. You'd better get down here. Kate and Lizzie exchanged a quick look of mutual bafflement, then hurried down the stairs. The SWAT officers stood in a loose semicircle around a haggard young man with long, scraggly dark hair and a neatly trimmed beard. He stood in the remains of a ritual casting circle, the candles already gone out. The air tingled with residual manna which lingered around the arcane sigils of the circle, and around the bodies. There were five of them, lying at the corners of a regular pentagon outside the casting circle. All were dressed in black robes, and each held a long, bloody knife in his or her hands. Each lay slumped in a pool of their own blood, still oozing slowly from the slashes in their throats. The young man stood with his hands above his head, and a proud, mocking light sparkled in his eyes. Hello, Lizzie, he said. I would like to surrender. Lieutenant Jaguar's officers handcuffed Nevin and led him back up to the shuttle. Lizzie watched him go without a word, though her tail never stopped thrashing. Kate, meanwhile, examined the remains of the casting circle. Some of it had been obscured by the spreading pools of blood, but between the sigils that remained visible and the traces of lingering magic on the air, she knew what had happened here. Fuck, she muttered. What is it? Jaguar asked. What were they trying to do? They weren't just trying to do it, they did it, Kate said sourly. This is an occultation spell. She kicked over one of the candles in irritation. Supercharged with five human sacrifices. Fucking hell. I don't understand. Lizzie's voice quavered slightly, but apart from that she was keeping her composure well. What's the use of doing a spell to cover your tracks if you're going to leave behind a pile of bodies? Because it kills any chance we had of doing an augury on this place. Or on any of these bodies. Sure, we'll probably be able to identify them eventually, but we won't know why they were here. We won't know what else went on here or where else these people might have been. Kate put her hands on her hips and let out a sharp sigh of frustration. <sighs> Your friend Nevin just made sure that his is the only version of this story we're ever going to get. He's no friend of mine, Lizzie growled. They all cleared out of the basement, and Kate put in a call to Morgan. She was on her lunch break at the moment, grabbing a warm bag of A-positive from the nearest blood bank, but she promised to be there with the coroner team as soon as possible. While they waited, Kate and Lizzie set to work searching the ground floor of Nevin's house. There wasn't much of interest. They found no sign of the enchanted jar Kate had seen in her augury. Nevin's phone and computer were nowhere to be found, nor did they see anything that might have pointed to involvement with the White Widow. Lizzie sniffed out a bag of hallucinogenic mushrooms in Nevin's bedroom, which could put him in some mild legal trouble if they had been acquired from an unlicensed grower. In light of the five corpses in the man's basement, though, it seemed almost silly to even mention them. After a while, Kate found Lizzie sitting on Nevin's bed, staring blankly at a poster on the wall. 
It was apparently for a band of some kind. Echoes of the Damned. He tried to get me to listen to them at uni, Lizzie said. Her voice sounded hollow and very small. Tried with all of us, really. He was mad about them. She shook her head slightly. Wasn't for me. Kate sat down beside the leopard woman, put an arm around her. There's no way you could have known what he was. This isn't your fault, Liz. Lizzie snorted. Oh, I'm not blaming myself. Not for this, anyway. She hesitated. I just... I don't understand. I can't comprehend what makes a person go so wrong. Kate squeezed her shoulder. If we could figure that out, we'd have a lot fewer bad guys. Yes, Lizzie said. Exactly. Kate chewed on that for a minute or two in silence. We'll still be able to hold him, right? Lizzie asked eventually. The DNA matched to the woman at the docks, the bodies. It's enough, right? It's enough for now, Kate agreed. Using human sacrifices in a ritual is a crime, even if they were willing. It's going to be hard for him to claim that he didn't know what they were doing in his own basement. She sighed. The stuff on the woman, though, it's circumstantial. We can show she was at his house, but there could be a hundred reasons for that. She could have been a maid, they could have been lovers. We don't know. And your augury doesn't help us, Lizzie said. It doesn't count as evidence, no. And with the occultation, there's not much chance we're going to find anything here to substantiate it. She frowned. And with Pamela getting something completely different in her reading, that makes it even iffier. Do you think someone tampered with the body? Could they, I don't know, plant a false signal or something? The idea stopped Kate's train of thought in its tracks. Maybe, she said slowly. Normally, augury interference means that something got blacked out, or fragmented, so you just get bits and pieces. That's what I thought I was seeing on the body by the docks. But to actually falsify a reading? That's a whole different level of sneaky. Lizzie's tail wrapped around Kate's body, flicked against her leg on the opposite side. But it's possible. I'm not sure, Kate admitted. Her mind raced through a succession of possible mana weaves, rejecting them as flawed almost as fast as she thought of them. Off the top of my head, it sounds like you'd have to fold some kind of passive illusion field around the body. But how would you send the information backwards in time to the point of the augury? She shook her head, frustrated. Ugh, this is not my area of expertise. Where's Artax when you need him? Lizzie's whiskers twitched. Isn't he the magic shop owner wanted by Imperial Intelligence? That's the guy. He's the best in the world at divination. He had some information in that case David and I were investigating a couple months ago. I heard you got deputized by Imperial Intelligence. Was Artax helping you with that? Kate made a wobbly gesture with one hand. Sort of. He answered some of our questions, but he also covered some things up. There were... Well, a lot of it I still can't talk about. There were things he thought it would be bad for the imps to find out about. I tried to get Count Halloway and his goons to play nice with him, but they wouldn't listen. Tried to bring him in for questioning. Artax saw it coming and rabbited. She sighed. Which sucks. 
We could really use him on our team right now. Lizzie considered this. Well, if that's true, then I suppose he'll show up just when you need him the most, right? Kate snorted a laugh. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know if he likes me that much, especially after everything that happened. I wouldn't blame him if he gave up on Metamorcity completely, and now he's sitting on a beach somewhere, sipping a daiquiri. One of the SWAT officers knocked on the open bedroom door and poked his head in. Detectives, the coroner team is here. Kate squeezed Lizzie's hand. Come on, let's see what Morgan turns up. They came out to the front lawn, where Morgan's skimmer was pulling up alongside the coroner van. The sun had already slipped below the western mountains, so Morgan immediately got out and came over to Kate. Hello again, darling, she said, giving Kate a quick but genuine embrace. She turned to Lizzie and bowed. And this must be Elizabeth Moore. I'm Morgan Drowling. Lizzie bowed back more deeply than Morgan. It's an honor to meet you, Doctor. Thank you, dear. Now I understand we have a bit of a mess downstairs. It took another two hours to document the crime scene. With the medical examiner present, the chain of custody on the evidence was secure, so Lieutenant Jaguar and her team headed back to Justice Tower with Nevin in custody. Kate and Lizzie stayed behind, helping Morgan and her team wherever they could. After a while, Kate tried to convince Lizzie to go home, but the younger woman would hear none of it. If I go home now, between one and five people are going to pry me for details on how my day went. I'm not ready to deal with that. I'd rather slip in after everyone else has gone to bed. Did any of your partners know Nevin? Kate asked. Camus has met him. He went to Chisholm, but he wasn't in our common room. Evie knows the story I told you earlier. Morgan, who was across the room examining lividity marks on one of the corpses, stopped and looked up in interest. You went to Chisholm? Class of 98, Lizzie said. You? Would have done, if father had had his way, Morgan said. I chose you, Psalm, instead. Morgan likes to slum it with us common rabble, Kate confided. Morgan threw a pen at her. It bounced off Kate's forehead, and she caught it and put it in her pocket. Ow! Morgan ignored her. So this suspect you arrested today, he was from Chisholm as well? Yes, Lizzie said. Why, is that important? It may well be. Morgan quickly related her journey to the street that morning, and the impromptu strategy session that had arisen between her, Evan, Callie, Callie's boyfriend Will, and the sysadmin Callie had hired to manage her mentor's computer system. She explained how they'd identified the tools the kidnappers would have needed to target a group of people based on a shared genetic heritage, and how Chisholm was the one place in the city that had easy access to all of the necessary equipment. Will is headed there tomorrow to look for evidence, Morgan concluded. If we find that all the victims in the Red Files have been to the teaching hospital at Chisholm, it will be an important clue to how they're targeting people. Lizzie's tail moved in slow, wary ripples. Has Will ever been to Chisholm? Not to my knowledge, Morgan said. But he's the right age, his appearance is unobjectionable, and we're getting him an ID. Lizzie held up a hand, simultaneously acknowledging Morgan's point and contesting it. She half turned to bring Kate into the conversation as well. I should go with him, 
Chisholm isn't an easy place to fit in if you don't know your way around. Kate glanced over at Morgan, who shrugged. Do you still have your student ID? Kate asked. I have an alumni card. It gives me access to just about everything but the dorms. And, she added, gesturing at her fur-covered face and body, no one will think I look too old to be a student. It's a good idea, Morgan said. Truth be told, I was a little worried about sending the boy up there on his own. He seems a bit innocent. Lizzie looked down at the bodies and blood that still filled the room. That will be a welcome change of pace. She went over to examine one of the bodies more closely. Morgan had already cut away the clothes from this one to document the lividity marks, and the body was lying on its side, with its back exposed. Lizzie walked around the body, examining it from all angles, when abruptly her tail went still. Lizzie? Kate asked. What's up? Lizzie did not answer. Slowly, she lowered herself into a crouch, putting on a fresh pair of nitrile gloves as she did so. She moved the remnants of the man's robes aside and shifted his arm, examining something just below his armpit. The tip of her tail started to twitch. Kate went over to have a look. Lizzie had uncovered a tattoo. It was quite small, about five centimeters wide, and not very artistically complex. A simple drawing of a skull and a key, surrounded by an arch and enclosed by a length of chain. Kate recognized it immediately. That's the same symbol Pamela saw in her vision. Yes, Lizzie agreed. She looked up at Morgan, who was working on another body. Do they all have tattoos like this? It took them about half an hour to verify, with all of the other details Morgan and her team needed to document, but eventually they found the same tattoo on all five bodies. So it's some kind of death cult, Kate said. They all get their tattoos as proof of their loyalty. Morgan frowned down at the most recent tattoo they had uncovered, on the left ankle of the sole female caster. I'm not sure about that, darling. This is an old tattoo. I'm not an expert, but I'd say she's had this for fifteen to twenty years. Kate looked at the dead woman's face. She might have been forty, but probably not much older than that. So what, this is a university thing? There's no way these people all went to school together. She pointed at another body across the circle, a young man. That kid's got to be half her age. They wouldn't need to have gone to school together, Lizzie said thoughtfully. Back at Chisholm, there were rumors about secret societies on campus, clubs that went back hundreds of years that could make one's career if one managed to get into them. Like a sorority? Kate asked. More exclusive than that, Lizzie said. More powerful, and perhaps more sinister. Supposedly, these societies had had hundreds of alumni in the upper echelons of power. Senators, ministers, top officers in the military— we would hear stories about secret initiation ceremonies, dark rituals performed at midnight under the new moon. She shook her head, as if in disbelief. I took them for ghost stories, fantasies made up to frighten freshmen. If there were such a group, how would anyone find out about it? Isn't the point of a secret society that it's secret? True, Morgan said but it is also worth noting that uni students are desperate to be liked and taken seriously. 
If one had been inducted into an elite society, it would be hard not to brag, at least a little. Sounds to me like you and Will have something else to investigate tomorrow, Kate said. Lizzie nodded slowly, her eyes fixed on the tattoo. For what it's worth, I hope I'm wrong, she said, sounding troubled. Because if those old stories were true, we're up against something much bigger than we'd bargained for. And that's the end of Chapter 30. Come back next time when Morgan shares some important information with Kate and Recludius's superiors come for Jared. Franz Kafka said, Don't bend. Don't water it down. Don't try to make it logical. Don't edit your own soul according to the fashion. Rather, follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly. So, let's see how well I'm channeling those obsessions into my fiction. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,633 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 662 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 77 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming is now in Chapter 12, and it continues to surprise and delight me with new twists and turns. Since I'm not really working from an outline for this story, I have the freedom to follow Kafka's advice, and to let this erotic adventure get as crazy as it wants to be. I've already stumbled onto several new ideas that I hadn't planned on, which have introduced new complications for Kate and John to overcome, and in the process, they've made for some really hot and unusual sex scenes. I'm also taking a sort of gleeful satisfaction in the fact that Kate and John keep making new problems for themselves in the process of trying to solve their existing problems. Jim Butcher does this in his stories all the time, and I'm a huge fan of the technique, but I don't know if I've ever embraced it as fully in my writing as I am here. It's going to be fun to see how they get themselves out of this. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.